So we are on Hebrews 5, and we're starting with verse 11. And these are 5 to 11 to 6 3, um, some of my favorite verses in the Bible. I have a lot of favorite verses, though. So uh, it's not my favorite, favorite, but um, I like these verses. So who would like to read? I think just go ahead and read uh, 511 to verse 3. I'm reading out of um, free Bible version. Okay. We have, <laughs> we have much to say about Jesus. And it's hard to explain because you don't seem able to understand. By now, you should have had enough time to become teachers, but you need someone to teach you the fundamentals, the first principles of God's word. It's like you need to get back to baby milk instead of solid food. Those who drink baby milk don't have the experience of living the right way. They're just babies. Solid food is for grown-ups. Those who by always using their brains, have learned to tell the difference between good and evil. So let's not get stuck on the basic teachings about Christ, but let's progress to a more mature understanding. We don't need to go over, again, the ideas of repenting from what we used to do about trusting in God, or teachings about baptism and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. So let's get on with it, as God gives us the opportunity. I can clearly hear the translator in that. Can't you just hear him? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> what version was that, though? The free, free Bible version. Free Bible version. Jonathan Gallagher. Okay. okay. Any questions or comments about this? My version says, you have been lazy and you haven't been listening. <laughs> Mm. You know, I often wonder if we have a as a church don't do that. We preach over and over about baptism, the state of the dead, and etc. So, what solid food? You know, um, what would be maybe solid? That's, food? Maybe that's why I just can't do the quarterly study guide. <laughs> yeah, this is it. This is it. This is all you need to know. <laughs> It's, it's somewhat better this quarter, but I don't know that I will agree with it all the way through. Um, well, and so I will say in defense of the quarterly, right, um, the idea that we should agree uh, to me is not uh, the point. As adults, right, thinking about this verse, um, they're always, we're, we're solid food. So the quarterly may itself simply be a guide you know, a, a written form to help us use our brains, whether we agree or not. Agreement should not be. Adventist education is not to be mere reflectors of other people's minds. So... Please remind um, Bible school teachers of that. Yes! Because <laughs> most so, of the time it's, it's taught as like, so this is the lesson. Yeah. I, I, I would say the freedom to to use our brains, to engage, to see perspectives, um, and to be facilitating those without having to say, you know, my favorite Sabbath school teacher rarely gave answers, but always asked questions, but also gave perspective. 
Yeah. Oh, if you had something to respond to that, Jean, go ahead. No, go ahead. I didn't, I real. I was kind of thinking out loud. Um, you know, I was actually, I had a question for you, Jean, which was, um, is this around the time of the Gnostics? No, that's, that's later. Okay. But there was, there was a kind of a pre-Gnostic development starting in mm-hmm. Paul's day. So I, having said that, yeah, there are some, apparently some kind of Gnostic things. Um, yeah, I was, I was just wondering, because one of the, I guess, things that I was reminded of, when, especially when we're going on, like, infants live on milk, and then adults get, you know, the, the solid food, is, um, so I had been visited by, like, Mormon missionaries for eight or so years, um, on and off, um, and, you know, it was, it was a really interesting time for me to learn, uh, kind of a different perspective. Uh, and also one thing that kind of was always at the back of my head was a major part of you know, Mormon faith tradition is there are kind of, there are levels of like doctrine that you're kind of able to get access to um, as you kind of move up through the system. Uh, and the the kind of rationale that is used is very much this of like, yeah, well, so when you're, you know, in the starting phases, you need the small stuff. And then as you progress through and I've, I've really wrestled with that because on the one hand, like it makes sense. I probably wouldn't start. Um, well, I, I actually, I have no idea where I would start if I was uh, being a missionary uh, of like what what doctrine or if any doctrine I would I would specifically go to first, but it it also kind of rubbed me the wrong way uh, because um, this is also a major tactic that uh, a lot of like unhealthy cults will use. <laughs> is, well, we'll start you off on the stuff that you're likely to agree with, and then progress more and more to kind of more extreme stuff that ends up like isolating you from your friends and family. Yeah. I don't think that's exactly what is meant here. Yeah. Paul isn't saying, okay, this is what you need to know at this level. Now, this is what you need to know at this level. Mm -hmm. Hebrews is saying, you just need to grow up. (laughs) (laughs) You've had enough time. (laughs) Yeah. Go ahead, Sue. I was wondering, you know, he's talking to Jewish Christians and I'm wondering, okay, what, what kind of solid food is he trying to get them to partake of? And and I remembered what Dr. Maxwell said once. He said, you know, Paul didn't change the the external beliefs about the Bible. You know, what does he reference here? Uh, baptism, repentance, you know, et cetera. But what he really did change dramatically was his understanding of who God was and what he was like. So... You know, that's what I wish our church would focus in on more. You know, who is he? What is he like? Um, what does our traditional teaching about the death of Christ say about God? Our traditional teaching about the sanctuary say about God? Are we really presenting to the world food that they can digest? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he even, uh, you know, I think of Paul in terms of teaching righteousness by faith instead of righteousness by works. And he even, or I don't know if Paul's writing or not, but the author of Hebrews even says, 
let's not lay a foundation of turning away from dead works of faith toward God. Let's not keep hammering that down, you, that salvation is by faith. So where is he headed? What is maturity? Um, he seems to indicate at the end, it's having your senses trained to distinguish from good, good from evil. Um, I would think that maturity is the original that hierarchy counterfeits, is it not? Interesting. Say more, Floyd. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I could bring a text to that, but go ahead, Floyd. Well, I, over the last few years, it's, it's helped to clarify a lot of things for me to, re, to, to look for the pattern of original and counterfeit. Because I think everything in Satan's kingdom is a counterfeit of a principle in God's kingdom. Mm-hmm. And because hierarchy has no part in God's kingdom, there's going to be a counterfeit and an original. And, and for me, the, the patterns work either whether it's a counterfeit or the original, which is why the counterfeit looks legitimate. Yeah. But in the counterfeit, it's, it's externalized. There's a chapter that we read a long time ago. Which one is that? So uh, I'm going to start with verse 4 of chapter 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It isn't jealous. It doesn't brag. It isn't arrogant. It isn't rude. It doesn't seek its own advantage. It isn't irritable. It doesn't keep a record of complaints. It isn't happy with injustice, but it is happy with the truth. Love puts up with all things, trusts in all things, hopes for all things, endures for all things. Love never fails. As for knowledge, it will be brought to an end. We know in part, and we prophesy in part, when the complete or mature comes, what is partial will be brought to an end. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, reason like a child, think like a child. But now that I have become a man, I've put an end to childish things. Now we see a reflection in a mirror, then we will see face to face. Now I know partially, but then I will know completely, maturely, in the same way that I have been completely or maturely known. Now faith, hope, and love remain. These three things, and the greatest of these, is love. You know, when I hear that and tie that in um, to no hierarchy, as Floyd was saying, I think of uh, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, Mm -hmm. the last of which, or the crowning part of love, is Mm self-control. And and that is self-management in a leadership business context. Mm-hmm. There's no hierarchy. Yeah. I think of it this way. I manage myself instead of trying to manage everybody around me. Yeah. The family model is, is the original, whereas the corporate model is the counterfeit based on hierarchy. So in a hierarchy system, privilege and value and everything is measured according to this scale you know, which is the kingship model. In the family model, you do have differentiation of responsibilities. You have differentiation of, of maturity, 
but everyone is equal in value. So the hierarchy is a differentiation of value, whereas the family model is equal in value, but different in levels of maturity. But in a family model, the, those who are more mature are the servants to, to try to help others mature. Whereas in a hierarchy model, those at the top are trying to keep everybody down below them because you climb on people to get to the top. And, and see, this is the, the issue with the language we have. I don't disagree that God is the almighty king sovereign of the universe, but we assign it kingship and not fatherly care. And, and even then we can distort and misunderstand what fatherly care means because we have often poor models. But if the idea is always and always has been, God wants his creatures to learn, grow, and develop. That even the perfect beings, if you want to say perfect beings, with him before the earth was created. I mean, I have a cosmic conflict kind of thing. So before the conflict started, there were still things to learn. They weren't fully mature. Adam and Eve in the garden had enough, but not everything. And so there was like the need to ask questions, the need to grow and develop. Um, I, I can't separate that as a possibility. And then when I come to Christ, I, you must have read it last week or last time was, you know, he, he grew in his experience through suffering and learned. And so there's something still in the, not that you have to suffer necessarily, but, but through experience, we learn. And if we avoid the hierarchy language, I like that family model, a healthy family model that our heavenly parent is nurturing us to self-management and love and compassion. And I've always been uncomfortable viewing God as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, because it is so hierarchical and it, it invokes images of, of the sovereign. And, and even though, you know, if you've been following the, the royal family of England lately, the tradition seems to rub the wrong way if you want to start thinking American, as uh, Harry seems to want to do. Um, the thing is that in Daniel, where Daniel calls Nebuchadnezzar king of kings and lord of lords, and in Ezekiel, who was in Babylon, they needed to see God as king of kings and lord of lords so that he wasn't like all these other kings. So I have to keep that in mind, that that was necessary. But again, this is the immature stage. On a more mature level, when Jesus comes back as king of kings and lords of lords in Revelation 19, he has a weapon coming out of his mouth. It's a sword coming out of his mouth. No military person would ever fight a battle with a sword in his mouth. No, that just wouldn't work. So we have to recognize that Jesus' weapon is the word, his word. And that, of course, and everywhere I turn in Scripture, even in the Old Testament, but especially in the New Testament, in, in the Gospels, it seems like Jesus takes these models, the economics, kingship, and law, and turns them 
a different direction. You know where Jesus said, uh, come to me, I'll give you rest. Uh, I'm gentle and humble. Mm-hmm. And and you think, well, he learned it all from the Old Testament. So I thought, where is it, you know, in the Old Testament? And I, I, I thought of that gopher skin tent, you know, where he said to David, oh, it's very nice, you want to build me a temple, but I was perfectly content in this gopher skin tent. Mm-hmm. But I'd be interested in, in other examples, you know, that I could cite. Uh- you have an, an, a, a prescriptive one in Micah 6.8. He has shown you, old man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly beside your God. Oh, beside your God. So in, it is beside your God or with your God. Implying it's that he's before him. It's not before him. The preposition is very clear. Oh. So back to what we were reading here. In uh, Hebrews, I remember a conversation, a brief conversation I had with a colleague of mine. I won't mention where. It wasn't PUC, but I'm not going to mention where it was. And uh, he taught in a different department from me, but also taught kind of in my department. We had come out of church and the speaker had talked about principles versus rules or something like that. And this colleague said, you know, I don't understand what the difference is between a principle and a rule anyway. And I kind of jerked back and went, okay. <laughs> I didn't say anything because I, I didn't want to make him feel that he was, didn't know anything. But I, I, I think that's an example of immature thinking, not being able to distinguish between things. That was a lot of the discussion that I had with my mom. That was kind of it summed up right there was, I learned there was such an erosion Mm -hmm. of her sense of ability to be able to tell facts from Mm non-facts and so for her it it just kind of came down to you kind of just have to choose what you're going to believe and put your whole heart into it Mm -hmm. and you know I I think that works really well for values and ideals and goals I don't think it works well for facts Mm -hmm. things that are verifiable and she was like what's the difference that hit me like you know, a grand piano. Yeah. Yeah, it would. And I think in our discussion with people, when we try to explain where we are politically, and they're in a different camp politically, there is a tremendous amount of non-reasoning going on that's more emotional and and I feel this way strongly and I feel that it must be this way because someone I idolize says so, you know. I I think that it's it's more people who have been come to the place where they 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 their senses have been trained to, by practice, 
to distinguish good and evil. Or their brains, as Jonathan Gallagher translated. And that's something that, you know, we can begin teaching children on, the, on a very young lo level to learn to determine what is good and what is evil. And it requires that you give just enough freedom at each level that they can find that out for themselves instead of you telling them what is good and what is evil. There was an article I read by a gentleman from Norway talking about what happened at uh, Southern University during his stay there. It was in the uh, 70s. I think he was in college there. And there was this big inquisition, so to speak, mm -hmm. against the faculty and who's a Jesuit here? And and because people were saying, well, you know, you know, he has a Jesuit background and he, you know, he must be a Jesuit plant. And so people were fired and, you know, it's all just craziness. And he concluded his article saying, people are not, people who are people of faith often cannot conceive of the fact that somebody who's in authority would lie to them, mm -hmm. especially if they're posing as a Christian. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Why, how could they lie to me? They can't, they can't value that. So they trust the wrong people, you know, and all these tragedies ensue. And, and that's because they're not trained. They haven't practiced mm -hmm. deciding what is good and evil for themselves. Mm -hmm. I don't know if my mother started the training early for me or if God did. <laughs> I have to tell you, my mother dedicated me to God as soon as she knew she was pregnant with me. And God took her up on it. Mm -hmm. And I, I can point to a lot of instances in my life where I, at a very young age, disagreed with my mother and went with what God wanted me to, to do. I, I could tell you stories about that. But anyway, I remember... A Sabbath school teacher saying something that I knew could not possibly be true. And I went home and I told my mother what she said. I can't even remember now what it was. And I said, that isn't true, Mom, is it? And my mother said, no, I'm afraid it's not. <laughs> uh, but that, that was the beginning of my thinking for myself. That's why I say I think we can begin it at a very young age, and it's tragic when we don't. If a child grows up being told what to believe, what to do, I, I think of a friend of mine, I, I roomed with her one quarter. Her mother literally chose every toy she was going to play with and chose how she was going to play. She had absolutely zero freedom as a child. And consequently, she, as an adult, as a young adult, when I knew her, she just had a very hard time not being swayed, possibly. She did have some staunch abilities to, to reason and, and all of that, but, but it was hard. It was hard sledding away from her mother's way of doing things. Mm -hmm. So I, I would love to see this happen on kindergarten Sabbath school. <laughs> you know, that's where I think it needs to be. 
and yet the church seems to frown on deviating from no party line. Not predictable. <laughs> Instead of the study guide being a suggested way to go, it is the last word. Yeah. And I've always taken the freedom to be the fly in the ointment, apparently. I, I think I, I can't speak to the people who create the study guide or anything like that, but I can't help and think that it's the rest of us who do it a disservice. It's like the 28 fundamentals of our tradition were not, I mean, obviously it depends who you talk to, but in general, we're not intended to be the creed statement of belief by which we are judged. And in fact, I, if my understanding is correct, we go against that. You, you can be a Seventh-day Adventist and not appreciate any of them. We might ask why, right? But, but the, the administration at, at various levels is human done. And the, the frailty or the lowest common denominator is a lack of maturity, right? And that, in the sense we're talking about today. Because a person can be part of our community, love, compassion, empathy, oozing out of them, but they're gay. Or they don't share the exact way the state of the dead. Or, you know, whatever. Pick any of the, the 28, for that matter. I just see the implementation of everything is human done. And so we find that people have potentially risen to areas of hierarchy. And because they have a position of trust, they view it as hierarchy as opposed to service, revealing the lack of maturity. I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, and so we get things like, this is the study guide. This is the truth the church is giving us. It's not about discussion. It's about some transfer. Right. Transfer, yeah. And I, I just approach all of it as an assumption of discussion. An assumption on my part, perhaps. But, but some of that came from my father that, as I remember it, and my brothers can tell you something different, but I remember it being teaching of respect. But it was never, this is what respect is. But I learned some of that by disrespecting my parents, but by them respecting me. <laughs> so does that, you know, the... So we have these experiences where we see examples of what is respect or disrespect by experience, but never a absolute definition that says, you know, and so I've shared that with people and said, and wherever they are, what is respect today to you? Well, is that what it is in every situation? And so we have to wrestle with these things. And that to me is the process of, of sifting right from wrong, good from evil. Yeah, I, I like um, Hebrews' emphasis on right, on good and evil instead of right and wrong. Right and wrong is children. Adults think about good and evil. What's destructive and what's edifying? It's yeah. often a more complex thing, right? Yeah, and, and, and when you move from right to good, you're no longer going to wield the right part of things to beat someone in the head. 
because you want good and, and good is bigger than right. It includes right, but it's bigger than right. What I see in our church that concerns me a lot is the way that people look up to authority. And part of that, I think, is people's fault. But part of it is, I think, authority's fault, too. Because I've seen publications where those that you should send your ties to the conference that is the treasure house of God. And the conference is the voice of God. And they quote Ellen White. But <laughs> they leave out all these other quotes where she said, oh, it's been years since I thought they were the voice of God. But right now, I think that's blasphemy to say that. You know, <laughs> don't, they don't quote that. But they, they seem, authority seems to like to, to cement their... Yes, the their authority, authority likes control. So when you want to control people, you have to establish very firm boundaries and you punish people for not keeping those boundaries and you reward people who do keep those boundaries. And more importantly, boundaries that the other was not able to collaborate or set. Right. So I don't know how you change it in, in the church, you know, so that truth can get out there, except to just keep trying to plant little seeds of thought here and there. Yeah, um, I share your concerns about the ch- current church modeling situation. It's it's far far removed from where I sit, and sometimes I wonder if I could actually be able to carry on a good conversation with someone in in that kind of power position. Well, not having issues with. I have issues with authority in general, but um, I know union presidents, I know conference presidents, and they're not all the same. Right. So I will say, I'm thinking, I think of, there were, I'm thinking at the very top. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, but even those have not all been the same. That's true. Uh, that's very true. No, I, I could totally get have a very good conversation with um, probably either Brad or um, Ricardo in my union. But that's because they say things more like I do. <laughs> so who elects them? Um, how did we get from, I forget the name of the president from, I think it was Norway. It was very... Jan Paulson? Uh, yeah, yeah. Very. Jan um, Jan retired. Jan retired. Yeah. And but then how? Who, who are these people who voted them? Well, them? you know, look at look at the nation national scene. Okay. How did we get from Obama to Donald Trump? Yeah. I see. <laughs> Waiting in the wings to grab power. And back. that's that's the thing. I mean, there's a lot of speculation going on about you know what we're headed for nationally and and thinking about the last four years and now we have a four years with a different president who is much more like Obama but during those four years you know that a certain party is going to be just on the rampage to, to take over the White House and and their view of democracy is weak because in, in evangelical Christianity, 
at least in some circles. I, there's evangelicals and there's evangelicals, okay? But democracy, democracy is to them an origin of human making. And God is not a Democrat. He is a, a uh, dictator. I was going to say, he's not even a Republican. Um, the, the, and this is, it's an interesting thing because, um, and this is just sort of a, an aside, sort of, um, because God is bigger than, than the United States, obviously, right? So right. you go around and, and we see Christianity and other non-Christians um, who are responding to the spirit. But within the American um, situation, I can take an inventory of beliefs, you know, policy beliefs and perspectives and, and preferences, policy preferences. And I can answer very similar to other people. And yet they will have almost never voted Democrat. And I have almost never voted Republican. I mean, I, we can do split tickets and, and, you know, whatnot, but on the national level, and yet, when you look at our policy preferences, we are almost identical. And, um, and I think that happens far more. And so the question now becomes, why those differences? Um, and it is how we've been raised. It is how um, the communities in which those things are talked about. But for me, as, a, as why I am Democrat, and I can appreciate why they are Republican, and we really are both more libertarian independents, even if we're left-leaning. Um, the, the, for me, I can't be a Republican because of all the laws that want to control my religious life. And they can't be Democrat for other, you know, for other reasons. And that is not a problem for them. So, so we, our preferences evolve through a variety of circumstances. But when it came to the last election, <laughs> it was, no, this can't happen again because it offended even their centrist and my centrist sensibilities. And anyway, so I, I think that there's a lot of, if we, if we look at the political landscape and say, there's so much to our development that is invisible. But when we come to what is the, and this I think goes to what Gene, you, you were just saying is if we view God as a, as an absolute monarch, then there is only one path and that's a path of extremism. Mm -hmm. And the extreme left is there with the extreme right to me as I, I look at it. Yes. Yes. Uh, the two ends meet. And I, I met the, the way the reason I said what I did is because uh, there was a split among theologians in the Adventist Church in the 1989, and we ended up with two societies for scholars. And out of that split came some publications, and these publications, one of them was came from actually from Southern. And as I read the articles in that publication, I came across statements of just saying democracy is not of God. Oh. Yeah. Democracy is not of God. And, and you know, 
God is, has thus says the Lord, and, and you don't discuss, you know, they didn't say it in those words, but, but that was kind of the attitude. Were they talking about democracy in the church? And I'm democracy, no, as a government. I, I wonder what the split was over with the theologians in 89. I don't know. There were problems on both sides. No, neither side wanted to listen to each other. <laughs> it was painful to listen to each other. So it was just easier to split. The conservatives, the conservatives split from the liberals. What were they disputing? Almost everything. Oh. Because almost every topic had two different ways of looking at it a conservative way and a liberal way. And see, to me, that's the richness. It shouldn't be either or, but in, because no one perspective, in my opinion, has all of the answers. There's value in, in, that, in the sharing of the perspectives. And, and, you know, Alden Thompson has published a book uh, on that very thing, how we need each other, uh, the right and the left. And I, I honestly see that need. But if we're going to be dogmatic about it, it doesn't work. We have to be humble and, and willing to listen. The dialogue aspect of it. Yeah. And even must... appreciating the other. Go ahead, Sue. Oh, I mean, I was thinking of Paul, who started out as a Jew, that early Christians were Jews. And the only thing he changed was his picture of God. And I'm sure he, he wished he wanted to go talk to the people in the Sanhedrin and was sure they'd listen, you know, that if they could see how he beat these people and now he, he came to see all the prophecies, etc. But Christ said, no, go, they're going to kill you, go, you know, they won't listen. And um, I'm sure he wanted to just calmly talk about things with people without them saying heretic, you know, um, kick him out of the church, nothing. But I see that same thing playing out today. Um, if you mention something that's a different perspective of, say, why Jesus had to die. Or um, the death of the wicked. What the Sabbath is all about. Yeah. Um, death of the wicked, yeah. Even though Ellen White clearly says. Uh, that's not, to me, that's been my hottest point, is, is the death, the death of, the of the wicked. Yeah. Yeah. And because it, it shows, you know, God's not out to be, he can't be arbitrary if that is the case. Right? There's no way he can be arbitrary. He hasn't cooked up any sentences. It's just natural consequences causing the death of the wicked. They made their choice. He's not, he doesn't have anything extrinsically involved with it. But, you know, you bring up things like this, and unless you have chapter and verse for... Yeah. For Ellen White, not necessarily the Bible, but Ellen White, you're going to be called a heretic. And that's, it's just so sad. Yeah. And I don't know really how to combat it. I don't know how to get the rest of the church to, to say, I don't I have anguished it. over that question for many years. <laughs> and most of the time I just try not to think about it. Yeah, your last point, Sue, how do we, how do we deal with the church in particularly with the views that I think are the most maturing views that we have that, that could be. I have gone through stages that I'm, where I move from thinking, being hopeful. This is, I can, I can still publish some things. I just don't talk about other things. 
to the point where because of change of guard and high suspicion of West Coast colleges and universities, I can't publish anymore in Adventist journals. I can't publish in Pacific Press, partly because I have continued on my path that I felt God directed me to take. And it has, I sound so different from the tradition. I, I believe the tradition. I just sound so different in how I unpack it and how I, how I do it. So my last, last attempt was at least I could publish as a scholar, maybe in the Andrews University Seminary Studies. And that failed quite dramatically. So I'm, I'm stumped. And the only thing I can say is that I keep asking God, who are your people? <laughs> where, where are they? <laughs> and I keep feeling impressed that they are everywhere, in the church and out of the church. And that maybe it's time to focus our attention more broadly and not just be stuck on trying to yank the church into our, our box. I think that for me has been... Um... I've been called a heretic, basically not in so not in such word, but but in description. And um, I I almost embrace it. Okay, fine. You know, it's the same thing that the the church went through in the fifties, wanting to be recognized by the evangelicals, mm -hmm. Protestant evangelicals. And if we'd actually said, "So what? Fine," I think we'd be in less of a mess than. Than mm -hmm. we are. That's just my perspective. But, but um, humanity, being what it is, wants to be accepted. And and the older I get, the less. Now I'm not working in academia at this point or anything. But and in my doctorate, I've had to deconstruct and reconstruct, mm -hmm. or or at least go through that language of experience in leadership. And so. Um, a certain teacher that I had who's been a mentor in real life um, gets mentioned. And because in some circles, the moment you mention that person's name, you're a heretic, regardless of anything else. And so I'm like, okay, fine. I embraced it within my worldview. But then I bring in, and what only makes me more of a heretic is bringing in Richard Rohr and Rene Girard and some of these other. And so, um, you know, I lost the scheme there, but, but the idea that um, the, I claim the freedom as a biblical student, as a disciple of Jesus, not of any particular teacher, that clearly we all have influences in our lives. I want to pursue knowing Christ and God through him that's why I am a Christ follower. And, and to be able to trace back that, that there was a split and I left Calvin behind. I can appreciate John Calvin for a lot of reasons. And I got that from N.T. Wright. Hey, don't flush John Calvin down. There's things to appreciate there and his Christian walk. But he willingly disagrees in some areas with him. Well, if I know that and I know why, I can appreciate Calvin. And then I can appreciate Tim Keller for similar reasons. 
and I can appreciate John Stott for similar reasons. I mean, I could disagree with some of his conclusions, but I need to learn to appreciate the man and the woman and their journey. And I think that, that the maturity of Hebrews that we're reading about is that in process, is, is filtering the influence and, and learning to appreciate the beauty of their journey while letting the chaff filter out and, and just get burned up. And, and, I, and so I can track all the way down in my faith tradition as a Seventh-day Adventist and say, I, you know, here's, here's that influence in my life. But now within that, what is God leading? How, is, how am I growing in love and empathy and compassion, the fruit of the Spirit? Is it, is it nurturing? Is it bubbling up by my relationship with him? It's not me to grow it. It's me to let it not, it's not for me to inhibit the growth. Yeah, it, it occurs to me when we talk about um, distinguishing between good and evil, that we become you know, like the person we worship and admire. So maybe we better not believe something that's evil about God, you know? And so, you know, is it evil to say this or that about God? I guess is maybe an approach I could take. You know, would it be would it be evil to say of a parent? You know, well, you do you obey me, or I'll destroy you, and I'll torture you for a little length of time too. You know, you know, would that be evil? I mean, I I don't know how else to approach it at this point, but maybe that's the, the perspective I'll take. Going with a an absolute monarch picture of God in itself, to me, is not evil. It's the language in the Bible God used to meet us today, where some of us are. I mean, this I see this continually throughout. Some of it I get from Gene in our discussions. The idea that God uses language to meet us where we are, but it's never the end. That he's woven in all this other stuff that actually is who he is. So I've reached a point in my journey that God is completely inclusive. We exclude ourselves. He's not a gatekeeper. That love, grace, life are flowing from him continually. That we are abiding in it because we have life and breath. That that there will be a day of, quotes, reckoning where he lets go. And those who want to be with him will be, and those who don't want will be honored. And I, that freaks a lot of people out. <laughs> and, and it's okay because I recognize that the language of the Bible has both for how I read it today. And some people need, Gene, somebody attended one of your talks a number of years ago, a women's group. And she met me just having moved to Portland. And I mentioned something because Trixie and I were there at this function. And I mentioned you had married us. And so she's like, oh, and I learned this. And I've been thinking, maybe I don't have a legal problem with God. And I'm like, yes, who told you you did? <laughs> But somebody else there said, no, 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 no. What's that? 
like two told you you were naked. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So, so it's like, can we allow others that journey? And I think a lot of people can't because they haven't experienced that. And I, I hesitate to say level, right? Because, but, but in maturing, we experience different things. And some people have matured at different rates and age has no relevancy to that. Um, well, you know, maturing, maturing is sometimes painful physically. You think of a child growing pains. And, and I think when a person has, is, feels insecure, they've, been, they've never been taught to think for themselves. That's, that's too threatening. Uh, and they've been maybe raised by fearful parents who have instilled their fears into them, then you try to set them free from their fears and it only awakens a greater fear. Uh, so we have to go very slowly and maybe translate each step. For example, yes, I believe God is sovereign, but he's not like any earthly sovereign. They have to agree with that, surely. Uh, you know, and, and that's what I mean by kind of translating step by step. Yeah, I think God, you know, when you, Bill, you said, who told you you had a legal problem? I think we need to translate the word law to Torah. I like the complete Jewish Bible because it always calls it Torah, which has more of a flavor, a, a melody of instruction to the word instead of law you know this is it or else you know i'll slam you in the hammer you know whatever um and so you know we just we need to explain this is like a natural law god set up that you will surely die you it's not a i'll get you if you don't do what i say you you just triggered something in me but uh, my my um uh doctoral program major was in ancient Near Eastern and Biblical law. Uh, I wanted to get to the heart of where law began. <laughs> what is interesting is the Bible has two kinds of law. They have case laws, which are laws set up for judges to possibly follow in, their ter in terms of verdicts. The other kind of laws, sometimes called by the fancy term apodictic law, it's really edicts. Like, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Most of those edicts do not have penalties attached to them. Only the case laws do. Can you say that one more time, Jean? Pardon? Can you say that one more time? Yeah. Uh, there's two kinds of laws in the Old Testament. There's, there's a law that has what we call case laws. If a man strikes a servant, he shall pay such and such a fine. So you have an if clause and a then clause. That's called casuistic law, as in case. Those laws are set up to kind of be guides to judges who have to make decisions. They are laws to be kept, but they're laws that practically everybody agrees should be kept. And then there are the edicts, like a pronouncement by a sovereign. And you have lots of those in the Old Testament. 
but they rarely, if ever, come with punishments. All of the Ten Commandments are, are those kinds of law. Right. Yeah, I just, I just made that connection, too. I looked up apodictic, and it says, as necessary, logical, or inevitable. Oh, hold on. Just went to the wrong. Um, necessarily true or logically certain. Mm-hmm. So another interesting. We gotta do this. Yeah, because well, most of those laws, you do look at them and go, "Yeah, that that's right. That that's the right thing to do." Logically certain that that's the right thing to do. And when when you realize that the whole set of instruction is really instruction, mm-hmm. and um, I love the place in Deuteronomy. At the very end, when Moses gives his final speech. But it says somewhere in, I think, chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, that he, he came down on, on Mount Sinai, and he gathered his people around his feet, and he instructed them. It's in the poem, I'm pretty sure, in 32. And it could be my translation that's not clearly saying it. Oh, here we go. Here we go. 33. This is the blessing of Moses. The Lord came from Sinai, from Seir. He shone shone like the dawn on us. From Paran Mountain, he beamed down. Thousands of holy ones were with him. His warriors were next to him, ready. Yes, those who love the nations, all his holiness... We're at your command. They followed in your footsteps. They got moving when you said so. Moses gave the instruction to us. It's a prized possession of Jacob's assembly. Uh, it's a little different than NRSV. I think the translations uh, are different than maybe the NRSV is what I remember. I mean, the RSV, I think, is what I remember. But I think there's a picture also in the Psalms of God instructing his people, them sitting before him. It's not the picture, of course, you actually have in Exodus. But it's this idea of instruction that really is strong. And I've often thought that very possibly it changed from Torah to law. When they decided that Moses was on par with Hammurabi. Oh, they, they started making... Moses is uh, about 300 years later than Hammurabi. So the uh, Jews wanted to make him out to be like Hammurabi? There's a lot of kind of crossover from Babylon to the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. So there was a tendency... To say, well, we we have Moses, and he's like your Hammurabi. You see, mm-hmm. was there a was it the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, which differs from so the, 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 the Jerusalem Talmud? Yeah, I mean, is that is that a real thing that there are kind of two mm-hmm. branches? Mm-hmm. Okay, the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud they see things a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I, and we could explore that, but the other thing was the Midrash and the Mishnah. The um, Mishnah is a part of the Talmud. It right. has laws like the Talmud. And I think it's, I'm forgetting. I, I'm, I'm not steeped in, in Judaism, unfortunately. So I haven't quite locked that in in my memory. But Mishnah is related to Talmud, whereas, uh, what, what was the other one you said? Midrash. Midrash. Midrash is more storytelling Well, to explain something. And this is where, for me, uh, these terms came to my lexicon just in the last three years. And that Jesus is the embodiment, as a, for a Christian, coming at, particularly coming out of Judaism, Jesus becomes the embodiment of the Midrash and the Mishnah, both the story and the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm still looking at that. I'm still contemplating that. But there's something profound um, in being Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Mm-hmm. And if I think if Christians could appreciate, and this is at least coming from me, because I'm learning to appreciate Judaism better and Christianity through that experience. And, and now I, I love the idea that Jesus is this, the fullness of the Torah, the fullness of the Midrash and the, and the um, Well, there's anyway. actually, there's actually, um, I think I have a book I recently bought <clears throat> that is about Jesus and, and Talmud. And there's actually a lot of similarities between the Talmud and Jesus. So where does the rub come in with Jesus and the Pharisees and Jesus and the Sadducees? It comes in, I think, and I may, I may learn differently eventually because I plan to read some books on this, but it seems to me that where it came to where they agree on, it had to do with things that just make sense, the laws, the traditions, of the elders that make sense. Even the book of the, well, even the covenantal code, which is part of the book of the covenant in Exodus, relies on Hammurabi. In Exodus? In Exodus, yeah. Where I think the rub comes in is that they got caught up in law as taboo more than instruction. And they got to be sticklers, sticklers for minutely keeping the law. And they had to keep making more and more laws to keep you from breaking the law of the Ten Commandments. And they forgot love, justice, and mercy, which is what Jesus finally nails them on. This is the maturity Right, and the the contrast of right and wrong versus good and evil, mm-hmm. and that love covers a multitude. Is am I quoting that right, or my love covers a multitude of sins? Yes. Yes, maturity is able to say that. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry. Did you say control versus protection? And they've got love, justice, and mercy. Um, well. Was it control versus protection? Yeah, there was a lot of control issues with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They loved control. 
and they really depict the two extremes, the right and the left, the conservatives and the liberals. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection, so they were kind of liberal in their views. And the, and the Pharisees thought they were better than the Sadducees because they held on to Torah. And uh, the Sadducees thought they were better than the Pharisees because they just held on to Torah and didn't have all those other laws. <laughs> and of course, the Sadducees were the priests, mostly. And the Sadducees made up the majority of the Sanhedrin. There's just a lot of parallels that we could talk about to today. Mm-hmm. But um, what I believe and I'm, this is my hypothesis, my working hypothesis, what I believe, and I hope to be able to demonstrate it in my research, that the Jews who crucified Jesus were very Babylonian, injuriously Babylonian. And so it was Babylonianism that led to Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, to give you one example, in the period where the exiles lived in, in Babylon, there was a circle of priests known as the Kanishtu. That's a Babylonian term. And that circle of priests gave rise in Judaism to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the body that voted to put Jesus to death. So there's there's a lot of Babylonian context. I hope to be able to show that Babylon crucified Jesus. I think it would give relief to Jews to think that it wasn't their Judaism that was valid and and did promote love and mercy and justice that put Jesus to death, that rejected Jesus, but it was the Babylonian Jews that rejected Jesus. I'm not, I'm not the only one who has come to somewhat that conclusion. Uh, Margaret Barker has uh, done some extensive research. I don't agree with how she unpacks it, but I agree with her conclusion that the term the Jews in the Gospel of John refers to the Jews from Babylon, which makes sense because it was when they went to Babylon, they came to be called Jews from Judah. They were the tribe of Judah going to Babylon. They came to be called Jews. It seems like Babylon is a symbol for oppression in Revelation. Am I wrong? So anytime you have the beast, the beast is a symbol of revelate of oppression. Babylon is more of a symbol of chaos. <laughs> oh, okay. The whoredom of the of the city of Babylon. But there's a lot of theology packed in Revelation. Yeah. The wine of the wrath of her fornication. If you unpack that, it's the fornication is with kings. It is her Babylon is the religion just it's the false religion as opposed to the new Jerusalem, which represents the true religion. Um, and so it's religion uniting with kings 
to have control, complete control. You have a lot of that in Babylon's history. And that's what led early Adventists to say that it was the union of church and state. Oh, what, Babylon? Babylon's fornication with kings. It's the union of church and state. But there is so much more than that. There's theology. The wine of the wrath for fornication. Why the wrath? What is the wrath about? Well, the kings used, Babylonian kings used divine anger as a means of controlling people. Yeah, and it's really, I think, symbolizing the, the use of force and fear in anything, mm-hmm. you know, like a parental mm-hmm. type of uh, relationship mm-hmm. and, or a church type of relationship or any type, any type of relationship that uses force and fear is not, I mean, you, I guess you do that when you have to spank a child because they're constantly running out in the street, eat your last straw and try everything else. But you, in other words, that's not your ultimate goal to lord it over anybody. Your ultimate goal is to preserve the life of the child so that they can grow up and have freedom and, and become mature. And I once read a statement that says, you lose the heart of anyone you try to control. And I think that's so true. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if you, when, you, when you have to control a child, you don't really have their heart right then and there. <laughs> you know, they might sit back and think, well, Auntie Sue really is a nice person other than this, you know. <laughs> but um, you are controlling the child to, to help the child, you know. Mm-hmm. Should be anyway. There are, there are ways, though, to avoid control and still nurture. Ellen White says we should raise children like a tender plant. We give them sunshine, we give them nourishment, we give them water and the right amount of shade. I think of a story that happened with Ellen White present. I don't know where she was, but she was in some public place and a mother had a small child who grabbed a hold of something that wasn't a toy to play with. And the mother said, no, you can't play with that. And took the toy, yanked the toy out of the child's hand. And the child started protesting and, and probably crying. And the mother gave it a sharp chastisement is what Ellen White says, a sharp chastisement. I suppose she slapped the hand of the child, something that almost all parents do at some point with their children. No, 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 you can't touch that. Ellen said to the woman, you have lost the faith, yet trust of that child in you. And I do not know how you will get it back. She said, if, and then she went on, talking about that a little bit. And then later she said, if a child is playing with something that is not suitable for him, instead of yanking it away from the child, offer him something that is suitable for him to play with. Mm -hmm. And once he has taken that, you have a thing that's not suitable. 
So I, I think I think there's still a lot for parents to learn about how to bring up children so that they have the least amount of external control because that child is going to grow up to control other people uh, if they see their parents doing it to them. And try to always give an explanation with whatever you're... Exactly. Always explain. Even with toddlers, if you explain, they understand far more than we give them credit. Because otherwise it comes across as lording it over them and they resent it and they don't trust mm -hmm. you to be a person that they can confide in. And just like Ellen said, you know, she lost the trust of her child. That happened to me when I was four years old. I had a sharp scolding for something that was out of my control. I slammed the door. I let the door slam with the wind. This was in stormy Oregon. <laughs> and I let the door slam with the wind accidentally because I didn't realize it was windy outside. I went outside and I door slammed shut. My mom was on the other side of the door uh, with a headache trying mm -hmm. to iron clothes back in the day when you had to do that. So I got this severe scolding and I had just been outside thinking that only my mom hadn't let me down. Everybody else in the adult world had let me down <laughs> and I'm only mom could I trust. And if, if she let me down and I had no one, that, that was my thinking. It was very immature, but that was it. And I went, I went back in. So I, when I went in and she scolded me like that, I just turned around and I went back outside and I stood in the same place I had stood before and said, now everybody has let me down. And I looked at the sky. At that time in my life, I was an atheist with very staunch Adventist parents. <laughs> and I wondered if there was a God, and if there was, what he thought of me. And did, could I trust him? I went back in the house and found my mother in tears. And she apologized. And I remember that little light that was inside of me that had kind of flickered out, came back on, just a little faint light. And I thought, well, maybe I can't trust people 100%, but I can trust them in part. I can partially trust them. That was a little bit of maturity happening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because none of us is 100% trustworthy. We don't know that. You made mistakes. Yeah. And that was one of the things, the first things that my mother taught me is that everybody makes mistakes, even mommies and daddies. <clears throat> and I value that. Because my parents never put themselves on a pedestal of perfection. And we had to believe in everything they, they did. Well, we didn't make it very far today taking a peek at Hebrews 6, verse 4. Because it is impossible to restore people to changed hearts and lives who turn away once they have seen the light, tasted the heavenly gift, become partners with the Holy Spirit, and tasted God's word and the powers of the coming age. Now that's a because clause, because, yeah, we're going to press on if God allows it. This is somebody who's really believed 
the full picture of God. They've lived it. They've basked in it. They've experienced it because they've had the Holy Spirit. And something happens and they don't ever come back. Or do they? I think one of the translations is while they turn away. But anyway. Yeah, I don't know which translation that is. It certainly would be true as long as they are in that situation. Mm-hmm. But it, I have seen, sadly, people who have the full picture of God who turn away, and I haven't come back completely yet. Do they just stop believing in God, or they believe in... Um, one person has been all over the place, not believing in God, coming back to God, then believing that he is, that everybody can be God, and... Um, and says they are crucifying God's son all over again, exposing him to public shame. The ground receives a blessing from God when it drinks up the rain that regularly comes and falls on it and yields useful plants for those who farm it. But if it is, produces thorns and thistles, it is useless and close to being cursed. It ends up being burned. It feels to me very final here. I would like I would like though to believe that there's always an open door with God for them to come back. But I do think something happens to the mind when a person loses the light that it becomes almost impossible for them to retrace their steps because they the way out the back door is usually a very complicated, gradual process. And the trail you leave behind is not well marked so that you can retrace your steps. And I'm talking about the pathways of the mind and how they're affected. I'm just, I'm just thinking that it's, it's much harder. And, and almost almost seems like it would be better just to cast one's helpless soul on God and say, I'm broken, fix me, heal me. But if pride is involved, that's not going to happen. Well, shall we call it quits for today? I think we've come to a good, or did you have something to say, Alex? No, I just wanted to apologize. I've been kind of scatterbrained uh, for a little bit. I've been fielding a lot of different texts, but I've really enjoyed listening to the conversation. No, it's all right. I know you have a lot on your mind right now. There's that, but I'm getting texts from a lot of different people. Oh, you're getting texts. I see. (laughs) (laughs) That would kind of divert your attention, wouldn't it? Yeah, unfortunately. The version that you use, the Common English Bible, I'm yes. now getting acquainted with that, hearing it in the class. And I, I, said I, don't, I, like I don't agree with every translation of every text. Mm-hmm. I'm disappointed with something in Leviticus instead of atonement, the reconciliation. It sounds like they're being, recon- that God is being reconciled to them. Although you could, you could reverse that and say they're being 
reconciled to God. Mm -hmm. okay. Well, I have to look into that more because I like the way it read quite a bit. I just happen to know that the the person who I happen to know the person who translated it. I'm I'm reasonably certain I know the person who translated it, and he believes in appeasement. He does. Mm -hmm. Oh, it, one of the ways he justified it in a book he wrote was to say that because the Babylonians and other ancient Near Eastern people believed in it, therefore Israel must have to. Hmm. But to God, and God is the one giving the laws. <laughs> oh. Um. oh, well. It seems like most, most Bibles do come across in their translations as appeasement, even though you don't need to. 